morning, church family. Colossians chapter number one is where we will be for our text reading here in just a moment. The book of Colossians chapter number one. And as Hunter said a moment ago, we are launching into a brand new series of messages where we are going to march through Colossians chapter number one and Colossians chapter number two in a series we are calling Secrets to a Satisfied Life. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later about why we came to this theme. But before we dive into this a little bit deeper, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, how many of you uh, have ever had a secret? Anybody ever had a secret before? And you're like, man, I, and then maybe you shared it with somebody else. And there's something unique about having a secret or hearing a secret. I, I remember um, uh, it was back in 2002, I began pastoring for the very first time. In fact, the first church I took as a senior pastor was in 2002 in Boron, California. How many of you know where Boron is? Raise your hand. You know where Boron is? Kind of, it's in like the middle of the Mojave Desert. For those of you who ever have had maybe had to drive to say, you know, Vegas or some other place like that, you're going to go literally, if you blink, you'll, you'll just move right past it because it's about 500 people. It's incredibly small. Uh, but in 2002, at 22 years old, uh, that's where I began cutting my teeth on full-time ministry. And I enjoyed it, had a great time. While I was there, as I was just getting started a few weeks into my ministry there, I, I met a gentleman who was in his late 70s, early 80s. His name was Don Findlay. And uh, Don came to my office and we started talking over a period of time. I began to realize that he was not a believer. He hadn't placed his faith and trust in Christ. And so for several weeks, I'd meet with him and, and we talk through the word of God. We talk through the gospel. Uh, we talk about salvation and, and we'd go back and forth kind of discussing things of the word of God. And, and after a couple of months, I was so encouraged and excited because uh, there in Boron for the very first time, uh, we were able to see somebody converted to Christ and uh, put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone to be their Savior. And, and I was pumped and uh, we were excited about it. A few weeks later, um, Don decided that he felt like the Lord was leading him to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And so we were going to baptize him. And it was going to be the very first time in my ministry where I had the opportunity of baptizing somebody. And I was, I was super excited. Uh, the problem was we did not have a working baptistry at the little chapel there in Boron. And so I called up some different folks in the community and found somebody with a swimming pool in their backyard. And we were going to do our very first baptism in the swimming pool of somebody's backyard. Now, be, because Don was a little bit older, he was, he was kind of a big guy. Uh, he had a little bit of arthritis, and, and so it was a little tough for him to get down into the pool. And I remember that first time baptizing him. And, and, and if, if you don't know much about, you know, how this kind of works, I was down in the water. And, and to be honest, the reality is this. When, when you're baptizing somebody, I know we make it look really easy and really simple, but it's actually, it's kind of difficult to be quite honest, because you kind of have to have the person help you up, uh, help you out a little bit. That is, you know, when, when, when you say buried in the likeness of his, of his death, you kind of need them to kind of, you know, pull themselves back up as you're trying to pull them as well, you know, because most people, most people, when you baptize them and you put them under the water, uh, they want you to, to bring them back out. That's just part of the, you know, it's part of the assumption. People assume when you baptize, you're going you're gonna to bring them back out, you know, because it represents his life, death, and then his resurrection. And that's why people get baptized. In fact, if, 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 if the ritual just went like, you know, we just baptized them into his death and left 
left them there and you know, hold them under. No, nobody would sign up for that. And so it's a very important part of the picture of Christianity, the resurrection of Christ. But it's also very just, you know, people, they, they, they prefer just to be brought back out. And so I was baptizing Don and uh, he went down. And I don't know if it was because he was a little bit heavier. I don't know if it was his arthritis. But I said, buried in the likeness of his death. And I, I went to pull him back up. And the, the reality, I, I couldn't pull him back up. He was wet. He was, I was like, he's heavy. I'm like, this is not good. And I'm looking at him. He's about six inches under the water. You know, he's looking up at me, eyes wide open, big smile on his face. And he's like, man, it's almost like that look of, you know, if I die right now, I guess I'm going to heaven. You know, we're all, we're all good. And he's smiling up at me and I'm trying to pull him back up. And I'm just really struggling to get him back out of the water. Finally, I had to get down under a little bit because he's a big guy. I've got kind of my shoulder and my arm and I raised him to walk in newness of life. And he was kind of excited and everybody started clapping and I didn't lose my first one in baptism. I, that, that, might have, that might have deterred me a little bit, you know, in this whole pastoring thing. If I literally, uh, first baptism, the, you know, we had to do a funeral directly after that would not have been, would not have been good for the, for the ministry there or our reputation as a church. And I, I remember a little bit later, uh, Don told me, he's my, he said, you know, I spent all these, all these years, you know, just looking for the secret to life. And he says, I think I finally found it in Jesus. You know, the truth is this. Jesus really is the secret to life. And what we're going to see here over the next few weeks and our theme for the message this morning, as well as the theme for our entire series is this. Jesus is the secret to our satisfaction. Jesus is the secret to our satisfaction. Now, as part of the introduction, I want to start today uh, by just giving you a little bit of a background on the city of Colossae, all right? So we'll get into the text here in a few moments. Uh, But right now, I just want to take some time and we're just going to look at the, what we're going to call the situation in Colossae. So on your way in, you should have received a service program. I hope that you'll use that as we go through our Bible study this morning. If you're visiting with us today inside, there's also a connection card that you can use to fill out. We'd love to have a record of your attendance. In fact, we'll send you some more information about the church and ministry here in in a little bit. And it was great to see folks who visited last week back in the early service and here even a few in this service. And we're just thankful for what the Lord is doing. So let's just start today by the situation in Colossae. Just going to give you some background, help you understand the context both historically as well as in the church, what's taking place uh, in context to this book being written. Now, uh, to give you a little context about the city, Colossae was located located in the Roman province of Asia Minor. So this is in modern day Turkey. I think we've got a map here. And so you'll see kind of it's situated a little bit inland uh, from where Ephesus is at. In fact, uh, Colossae would have been about 100 to 120 miles uh, inland from Ephesus, kind of right off the Licorice River Valley. And so I think we have another map that kind of gives us an idea that Colossae was kind of off a river. And so what would happen is there was a trade route that would go through Ephesus, uh, toward Laodicea, toward Heropolis, toward Colossae. And so there was a lot of trade that would take happen because it was right off of this particular river. Now, most of what we know about Colossae 
prophecy, just kind of historically, comes from archaeology. Uh, there are some coins that they have found from this ancient city, and uh, they use these coins, and, and historians will look at them, and they start to get ideas of what's happening through uh, these coins, as well as other uh, archaeological objects that have been found in the area that Colossae was located in. Uh, there was also some writings of some ancient historians that spoke about the uh, history of this particular city. Uh, it wasn't too long ago I was uh, watching one of these shows where they have kind of uh, ancient artifacts and they, they kind of um, just sell these, these coins. And I saw one of these coins, somebody had it in their private collection, and it went for over $150,000 he was able to sell this thing for. So all that to say, if you ever come across one, you might want to hold on to it, all right? A little, a little bit of a, a kind of a small fortune is what these, these coins would be worth. And so it was in 480 BC that the ancient historian Herodias referred to Colossae as one of the great cities of Asia Minor. Uh, a few, 80 years later, there was a historian by the name of Xenophon described this as a large and prosperous city. So there is some historical accuracy to the fact that these cities did indeed actually exist. In fact, they existed hundreds of years before the time of Christ. So by the time that Paul uh, is going to write to this church at Colossae, this city is hundreds and hundreds of years old. Its economy depended mostly on the trade of uh, textiles and particularly trading a distinctive type of texture, a type of cloth that was made out of purple. Um, back in ancient times, uh, purple, the way it was created, the way it was made was so laborious. It took so much time that only very rich and wealthy people could afford to have these purple fabrics. And so there was ways in this part of the region of the world that made it easier for them to create these purple textures. And so this is really what Colossae was known for. It was known for creating, you know, uh, some of these fabrics. And then because it was on a trade route, it was very easy for them to sell it all around the world. And so that's what they would do. And that's what their economy was primarily based on. In fact, uh, Xerxes, the Persian king, visited this particular city in 481 BC. The king of Persia came maybe to purchase some things. We don't know all the details around it. But this was a very influential city 500 years before the time of Christ. Now, because Colossae stood at an important trade route, you know, right there past Ephesus on the Euphrates, it originally had just great importance. It was a very important city. Uh, it was because Laodicea was a short distance away. Uh, eventually, once Laodicea was built up after Colossae, what had began to happen is the trade route moved from going through Colossae and the main trade route started to go through Laodicea. Now, Revelations chapter number two tells us about the city of Laodicea. We're not going to preach a message on that. But because of that trade route being moved, Colossae began to dwindle in its importance in the ancient world. Um, eventually, by about the 7th or 8th centuries AD, so this is now, you know, a thousand years after uh, it was originally built, it was exposed to some terrible raids uh, by the Turks and others by about 12 uh, AD, 1200 AD, uh, the city was completely gone. There was really nothing left of the city of Colossae. In fact, today, uh, that is what is left of this particular city. Um, basically, because of the attacks, the city itself had to move 
uh, to another region, and uh, they built up another city a little uh, further uh, later. What's, what's interesting about that is it was the, the city that it moved to was on the slopes of, and I think I'm going to pronounce this right, Mount Dadumusul. And on that particular mount, it was kind of a little bit more protected. What's interesting is historians and archaeologists have gone there uh, to where the city of Colossae has moved to, and they actually have found ruins of an ancient church that existed there. And so they believe that those are the ruins of the church that was originally started here in Colossae that moved a few miles away. And so the site of ancient Colossae, as you saw a moment ago now, is just totally uninhabited, at least of where the, the location was here. So how did the church get started itself? The church itself was not started by the Apostle Paul. What's interesting, it was the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, For those of you who maybe have grown up in church world, uh, the Apostle Paul was an evangelist who, who went to all parts of the known world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is known for specifically going on three different missionary journeys that took several years at a time. And he'd go to different cities, he'd go to those cities, he'd see people saved, come to faith in Christ, he would then disciple them, he'd raise up pastors and leaders, and he would leave that location with the church. And each one of his missionary journeys, he would do this again and again and again. So the Colossian Colossian church was actually started while Paul was on his third missionary journey. So this is a little bit later in his life, but the reality is Paul never went to Colossae himself. Uh, This church was started while Paul was raising up the church in Ephesus. Uh, Some of you will remember uh, last year, the year before, uh, we preached verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And so as Ephesians, that was about 100, Ephesus was 100 miles away from Colossae. While Paul was there in Ephesus, raising up disciples, preaching the gospel, seeing a church built in Ephesus, one of his co-laborers, one of his partners in ministry, you could say, they went, his name was Epaphras, Epaphras went the 100 miles inland to this little city of Colossae, and he started making a church, started launching a church, seeing people raised up, seeing people saved, discipled, and he started developing a church there in Colossae. So Paul never made it the 100 miles in to go to this church uh, presently. We're going to see this in verses number 7 and 8 where he says he's never met them face to face. And so this is, it was Epaphras who started this church. Now, What's interesting about Epaphras is his name, the name Epaphras, is a shortened form of the name Epaphrodites. Uh, maybe some of you will remember from high school the mythological god uh, uh, Epaphroditus. She was the Greek goddess of love and fertility. And, and the fact that Epaphras, his name was a shortened name of this Greek goddess kind of seems to indicate that Epaphras was not born into a Christian family. In fact, he was probably born into a pagan family uh, that kind of worshipped these pagan gods. And at some point in his life, uh, some point later on, he was converted to Christianity. And after being converted to Christianity, he joined the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. They get to Ephesus. Epaphras says, hey, I've heard about the city Colossae. I'm going to go to Colossae. We're going to see some folks saved, some folks develop and baptized. And so Epaphras goes, he sees the church started up, and uh, that's how the church originally came to be. Now, the letter itself that we're going to read, these were literally letters that uh, would be penned out and sent to these churches. So the Apostle Paul would write out these letters and he'd have them sent. This letter was actually written while the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome. 
So as he writes this, he's a, he's a prisoner. Um, from the context, the best we can make out is the fact that Epaphras at some point left Colossae, traveled the 1,300 miles back to Rome, and began to give a report to the Apostle Paul about some of the things that was taking place in the city of Colossae. And so as Epaphras comes to Paul, says, hey, here's what's going on. This is the good stuff that's happening in the church. This is some of the stuff that's taking place in the city around the church. This is some things that are happening. The apostle Paul then from prison takes out, you know, his, his parchments and begins to write a letter. This took place about 60 AD. And so Paul begins to write a letter to this church at Colossae that he has never been to personally. Now we see the kind of the reason he writes this kind of begins to emerge at the end of chapter number two. You say, why was Paul writing? And we begin to get an idea of why the apostle Paul was writing this book in verse number eight. And he says this, he says, beware, verse, uh, chapter number two, verse number eight. He says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. And as we're going to see in a moment, he's speaking specifically of Greek philosophy. This would be the philosophy of Plato and Socrates and some of the other Stoics of that time. And so he's speaking into these. He says, he, he says beware believers, beware Christians, lest they spoil you through this philosophy and this vain deceit. He says, he, he says this philosophy sounds very, very good, but he says it's all vain. He says it'll puff you up, it'll, it'll make you feel good about yourself, like you're intelligent and smarter than everybody else, but it's all just vain. And he goes on to say, and the traditions of men after the rudiments of the world and not after God. And so some, at some point when Epaphras goes to Rome and has this conversation with the Apostle Paul in prison, he tells Paul, he says, listen, he says, there's some things that are happening in Colossae because there's so many travelers going in and out of this city that a lot of philosophy, a lot of ungodly worldly philosophy is making its way into the city, but not just into the city, it's engaging a lot of the believers. And now the believers are wrestling with some of this heresy, some of this false doctrine that's beginning to permeate. And so the apostle Paul, he gets up and he writes this letter and he says, hey, I just got to warn you guys. You just got to beware of some things. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And so there are some things that you, you want to be on guard against. And so this entire letter of Colossians, these four chapters is really the Apostle Paul's attempt to guard the church at Colossae uh, from these heresies that are slipping into culture and slipping into the city during this time. He goes on and says, he says, beware lest any man should beguile you or, or trick you into believing things that are just not true. And so that's, that's what's taking place here at the church. And so you say, what type of heresies were slipping into the church? From the end of chapters number two, the best we can tell, there are, there are two real specific types of heresies that the Apostle Paul is going to address. And they're two kind of two different sides, two extremes, I guess we could say. Uh, one of it you see in this passage, he talks, about, he talks about beware of the traditions of men. In fact, later on in chapters number two, we're going to discover that really what he's dealing with is this, just this, um, kind of Jewish, Jewish ideology or what we call kind of legalism. It was this idea that, yes, we needed Jesus, all right? And there's this philosophy that, yes, Jesus is important, but we have to add some things to Jesus if we're going to experience salvation. And they were talking specifically about these Jewish traditions of circumcision and these ideas of, hey, we've got to, we've got to celebrate these certain rituals and 
follow these certain traditions, if we, if we really want to experience all that God has for us, if we really want to make God happy, if we really want to be saved, like really saved, then yes, we need Jesus, but we need Jesus plus our traditions, and Jesus plus our rituals, and Jesus plus our religious rules. And so the Apostle Paul is going to spend some time in chapter number two, and he's going to address this legalism that's taking place in the Colossae. Now, the other area is not just uh, legalism, but he's also going to kind of warn this church of what is sometimes referred to as asceticism or Greek philosophy. It's this, what we said a moment ago, it, it was kind of the philosophy that was being propagated earlier on in Greek kind of culture with Plato and Socrates. It was just like, it was, here, the, the, the main idea was that, you know, asceticism was like, okay, the, 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 the thought process was we're intrinsically all evil, and so we've got to ascend to, we've got to, we've got to get this knowledge and this truth that can only be garnered by these really smart, you know, philosophers. And so they would get all this information together, and, and they just, it was like this hodgepodge of beliefs. And so uh, Paul comes along and he says, no, he says, don't be led astray by all this vain philosophy. It'll make you feel like you're really important. And it'll, it'll, man, you'll, man, I'll get the dopamine flowing because you'll be learning all this stuff and it'll make you feel good because of the dopamine release into your blood system and things. But he says, just don't be led away by that. He says, basically what we need is to know that Christ is enough. And so he's going to push back on Greek philosophy as being the way to experience human flourishing at its very finest. But he's also going to push back on Judaic kind of legalism that says you've got to add stuff to your salvation. And so what Paul's going to come and do in chapters number one and two of Colossians, he's, he's basically going to come and he's going to say, hey church, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. All right? We don't need to add stuff to Christ. We don't need to take away things from Christ. All that Christ is, his word and his promises, his salvation and his grace, Christ is enough. Now, what's interesting about this particular passage is even though it's very um, evident that the Apostle Paul is warning this church at Colossae of some of this heresy that's kind of seeping into the culture and seeping into this particular city, Paul will not spend the majority of his time focusing on everything that's going wrong in the culture. I think there's a lesson to be learned for us here. While he does address it, he does acknowledge it, he does see it as being there, he does not spend the majority of his time just harping on how bad Colossae is, and how bad the culture is, and how bad the politics of Rome are, and how bad the Greek philosophy is. He addresses it, he acknowledges it, but he spends the majority of his time helping the church at Colossae lift their eyes above it and get a big, clear picture of who Jesus is. And, and this is really important, because if we're not careful, we can kind of get into this mindset of, well, we've got we've to know everything about every false religion and know everything bad that's happening in politics and everything wrong in our society and we just got to go after that and Paul's saying hey we got to understand that that exists we've got to know that that's a thing but ultimately what's going to bring healing what's going to bring all that we need for for salvation and hu human flourishing is ultimately going to be found in the person of Jesus so we've got to get to a place where we fix our eyes on him and that's what he does He's going to spend the majority of his time helping people get a big view of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the best examples I, I can think of is um, uh, for many years, back in the early days of the banking system, 
um, there was a lot of counterfeit that would happen in the early days when the banking system first came out and currency first came, especially in the Americas. And so we, you know, we got the 1910s, 1920s. And so early on, because counterfeit, you know, money was such a big deal, uh, banks would have to spend a lot of time training their employees to be able to identify counterfeit money. And what was interesting about the way they would do this, rather than going to a seminar and saying, okay, look at this counterfeit bill and, and look at this counterfeit money and study it really, really well, uh, they wouldn't do that. What they would do, and their, their, their philosophy for kind of helping their tellers know what a counterfeit is, is over and over and over again, they would have them count out authentic money. And they would touch it, and they would see it, and they would feel it, they'd even smell it, and they would just become very, very accustomed to what real currency felt like and looked like, and they would handle it again and again and again and again and again, and they would become so kind of familiar with it that every once in a while they would slip in a counterfeit, but because that teller had become so accustomed to what a real currency felt like and looked like, the moment a counterfeit was slipped in, the tellers would instantly notice it. They're like, no, this is different. This is different. So the banker, the teller, they, the, the banks didn't basically hand them a bunch of you know, counterfeits and say, hey, study this. No, they just showed them the real thing. They got them real familiar with the real thing. And when a counterfeit came along, they could quickly identify it. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. Paul's saying, hey, I'm, yes, there is some counterfeit stuff happening. There's some heresy that's slipping in. You've got to acknowledge it. We've got to be aware of it. But here, here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on that which is real. We're going to focus on the truth. We're going to focus on that which is authentic. And we're going to get a very real, clear, accurate picture of who Christ really is. Because what Paul believed is if the church at Colossae could get a big view of Christ, if they could get an accurate picture of all that he was and all that he is, that whenever the heresy came along, the church at Colossae would be able to be like, no, that's not right. Why? Because they had such an accurate uh, perspective of what truth was. That's why here at our church, we're so big into discipleship. Yes, we could spend all our time and we, we could spend whole series. We could spend 18, 20 weeks, uh, you know, studying false religions. And, and we could go over here and we could spend weeks and weeks talking about everything bad in politics. And we could run over here and we could spend all of our time focused on what's wicked about society and wicked about culture. But here, here's what Paul primarily did. Paul primarily just said, here's who God is, here's who Christ is, this is his truth, this is his word, and when you really know that, and you're really saturated in it, the moment a counterfeit comes along, you're kind of like, no, this is, this is something about this, not, not right. And that was his approach to kind of moving into this. He addressed it, he acknowledged that which was heresy, but he did not dwell on it. What he dwelt on was truth. He dwelt on Christ. He got people focused on Jesus. And I don't want to have us misunderstand it. There are times to call out, as Paul did, that which is wrong and that which is heresy. But it's very important for us as a church and for us as believers to know what truth is. To become very familiar with what truth is, who Christ is. So when any counterfeit comes along, it's just like, it just bounces off. It's like, we're, we just know, hey, something about that's not right. So he deals with legalism. He deals with this Greek aestheticism, which kind of opened the doors to some mysticism. Um, we, we see this in the latter parts of chapter number two, where Paul's like, hey, beware of like praying to angels and all this. Like there was this, there was this kind of a, a sense of the mystic out there and that kind of flowed from some of this aestheticism. And so Paul is saying, hey, we got to get focused on Jesus. 
We got to get focused on truth. We got to get focused on his righteousness, which leads us to our theme of this particular verse. And I really believe the theme of Colossians is found in chapters number one and verses number 18. And and if this whole book was summed up into a single verse, it would be summed up into verse 18 if you want to look at it. It says, and Christ is the head of the body. What body is he talking about? He's talking about the body of the church. And the Apostle Paul very early on is saying, Christ, Jesus is the head of the body. Can I remind you today that when it comes to the church, the Pope is not the head of the church. Can I remind you today that there's no priest that's the head of the church. I'll go as far as to say, I as a pastor, Pastor Nick, we're not the head of the church, all right? The deacon boards, the elders, the leaders, connection group leaders, ministry coordinators, we're not the head of the church. Uh, We're seeing very clearly that Jesus Christ, he is the head. Uh, I had a professor once say, if you change the head, you no longer have a church. Jesus has to stay at the forefront of the church. Who is Jesus? The Bible says in the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. Word was made flesh. Christ, His Word is the head, the authority of His local expression of the church. It goes on to say, it says here uh, in verse number, uh, let's see, where are we? I, I'm getting all thrown off here. Oh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And it says here, for He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice this, that in all things, that in all things, He might have the preeminence. That He might have the preeminence. That's, that's really the theme of this passage here, that Christ is preeminent. So I guess the question I would ask us today is this. Is Christ preeminent? I mean, is he, the Bible says in all things. Is he preeminent over all things? Or is he just prominent? I don't know, but it might be possible that in many of our lives, while Christ is very prominent, we haven't surrendered ourselves to a place where we allow him to be preeminent. Preeminent means Lord over all. He's over all things. And we humble ourselves and surrender to a place where we allow him to be preeminent. Or is he just prominent? Is he just prominent in our schedule? Is he just prominent in our decisions? Is he just prominent in our lives or does he truly have the preeminence? Um, Galatians chapter 1 verse 18. And I appreciate you guys kind of sticking with me here. We're, we're, we're kind of shotgunning it a little bit. Galatians 1.18 says this, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which has already been preached, he says, let him be accursed. So the apostle Paul writes the book of Colossians because he says, hey, the gospel is God's good news. And he says, if anybody preaches another gospel, they preach another gospel. What, what, what other gospels could there be? A gospel that says Jesus is not enough. You need more than Jesus. You need less than Jesus. He says, hey, if anybody preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Christ is enough for our salvation, and he is enough for our human flourishing. We say it sometimes this way. He's enough for our eternal life. He's enough for our abundant life. Christ is enough for all things that pertain unto life and godliness, as we're going to see play out a little bit later. I think I put this in your notes, but everything in this fallen world will fail you at some time. Everything. There will come a point where every relationship, there will be relationships in your life that will fail you. 
Maybe you're here today and you've had a spouse fail you. Maybe some of you have had parents who have failed you. Maybe some of you now have had seasons where your kids let you down. And that relationship failed you to a degree. Because everything in this fallen world will fail you. Some of us have had experiences where our finances let us down. You ever been let down financially? Man, it just didn't come together, it didn't work. We've had experiences now where, um, because we live in a fallen, broken world, there, there are some in our local congregation who have been let down. Uh, they've, they've had their health fail them. Why? Because our bodies are part of this broken world. Everything in this fallen world at some point is going to fail you. At some point, it's going to let you down. Relationally, man, when it comes to our health, why? Because we live in a broken, fallen world. Everything in this fallen world will let you down at some time in some way. But Jesus, Jesus is with you always. And Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. Now, I know if you've been in church for any length of time, that sounds so cliché. Like, in fact, we hear it so often, it literally doesn't mean anything significant to us. It's just like a little inspirational saying, Jesus is enough, or, you know, uh, Jesus here, he, he never fails. But as we're going to see in this book of Colossians, there are some very real, robust, functional, and practical realities to that statement that Christ is enough robust emotionally and mentally, robust in, re in relational elements on a soul and spirit level. That idea that Christ is enough is not just happy talk. It is a spiritual reality that can make a huge impact in our lives if we will engage it properly. Christ is enough, all right? So, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the situation there in Colossians. I want you to, let's just go to Colossians chapter number one. Uh, we're going to start reading through this. I'm going to go down to verse number eight because I, I want you to start to get a, a, a little idea of what's happening. So it says here, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, you, now this is very common if you've read through any of the epistles of Paul. He often will start this way, but it's especially significant in the book of Colossians because as I said earlier, Paul had never been to Colossae. He never went there. And so I think it was really important for Paul to say, hey, listen, I know you've never met me. I know we've never looked each other in the eyes face to face. We've never known each other. But he says, hey, I want you to know I'm just not another guy. I'm not just another teacher. He says, I'm apostle. That word apostle means sent from God. I'm one sent from God by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So the first thing he does to this church when he's writing the letter, he's setting up his authority. Why, why does, who is this guy, Paul? We've never met him. We don't know who he is. And he's basically saying, I'm an apostle. I've seen the risen Christ. I have a right to say what I'm about to say. And this was especially important because he's never been to Colossae and he's never met these people. Later on, he's going to say, I hope to meet you one day. It's not going to end up happening, but that was his heartbeat. And so he, he starts this book by kind of laying out his authority as an apostle, giving him the right to say what he's about to say in the upcoming chapters. He goes on in verse number two and can, continues it in a way that he does in other uh, letters to other churches. He says, he says, to the saints and to the faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, he says, hey, I know there's some of you, and man, you're saints, you're saved, you're believers. He says, and you've been faithful. 
even in the midst of what's happening in your culture, even in the midst of what's happening in your society, even in the midst of what's happening around you, you have maintained by God's grace faithfulness. And I'm going to tell you what a blessing it is to be a part of a church where even in the culture that we live in in the 21st century, everything that's happening politically, everything that's happening, you know, in our society, it's really cool that there are some people who have just remained faithful to Christ even in the midst of the day and age in which we live. And just like Paul says that to the church at Colossae, I say that to you. Man, I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful that there are some who are saints and who have remained faithful and perseverant unto Christ. It's a blessing. And Paul is rejoicing in this. So then in verses number three through verses number six, Paul is just going to lavish on praise. He's just going to start. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse He's just going to be like, man, these are all the things that I'm so grateful for. These are all the things I'm thankful for. These are all the things I praise God for. Let's, and let's look at some of those things. Verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He says, you are always on our hearts. I know I haven't met you. I, I know we've not seen each other face to face. But he says, I want you to know I'm praying for you. He goes on in verse 4. He says, I've been praying for you how long? Since I heard of your faith. He says, since I heard about the fact that you placed your faith in Christ and you got rooted and grounded in Jesus, he says, I've been praying for you. And he says, I, I praise God for your faith. But he says, and of the love which you have for all the saints. Don't miss this. One of the marks of authentic saving faith, one of the ways you know whether or not you're really saved and not just kind of saying something about Jesus and saying something religious and, you know, just doing happy talk that, you know, if, how do you know when you're, if there's really, if, you, if you've really been saved, if you've really expressed faith in Christ, one of the marks is, he says, there's love for all the saints. One, one of the marks of a person who has saving faith is they are. They love the brethren. They love other believers. They love others. He goes on in verse five. He says, and what else am I praising the Lord for? Not just your faith, not the fact that you've just been placed your faith in Christ, not just the fact that you have authentic, you love unconditionally other people. He goes on in verse five, and for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before on the word of truth of the gospel? He says, I'm just thankful that you have a hope. Man, you're persevering through difficult seasons and culture and you're persevering because you have hope. And can I say this? One of the reasons we struggle as Christians to be perseverant and faithful is because we've lost the hope of heaven. We lose our focus on the hope that one day we will spend eternity with Christ. But when your heart and mind and emotion is fixed on that hope, it breeds a perseverance and a faithfulness. Verse 6, he says, this hope which has come to you and is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit. He says, your life's bearing fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. He's saying, you know what? Yes, there's faith and there's love and there's hope. And this is all that's being manifested through your life. And your life is bearing fruit. And I commend you for it. And this is how Paul's starting this letter. He's, he's really praising them. Now, in a moment, we're going to see where he's going to, he's going to challenge them a little bit. He's going to come along in a few verses later, but before he does that, he really just is encouraging them. Now notice verse 7. He says, verse 7, how did, how did he get to this place? And it says, you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. How did Paul find out about what was going on in Colossae since he had never been there? 
this, uh, this Epaphras came the 1,300 miles to Rome while Paul's in prison and tells them about everything that's going on, tells them about their faith and tells them about their love and he tells them about how faithful they've been and the fruit that they're bearing in their life. Even though in culture all around them, there's this heresy and there's all this stuff trying to seep into the church. And so Paul is addressing that, which leads us to our second thought. We looked at the situation in Colossae, what was taking place historically, what was taking place, you know, in the church, how it got started. Not only do I want you to see the situation in Colossae, but I want you to see second of all, the subject of Colossians, okay? I think we've laid a foundation here. What is the subject of Colossians? What's the theme of it? It's, it's simply this. It's that Christ is supreme. And we are going to see this played out as we read about in verse number 18. He's the head of the body of the church in all things that he might have the preeminence. This is the theme of this book, that Christ is supreme. The theme of Colossians is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. What does that mean? You're like, man, the only time I use the word supreme is when I'm ordering a pizza. You know, that's like a, it's my context for supreme. We're not, that's not obviously what's being referred to. We, we're not equaling Christ on the same level as, you know, Pizza Hut, you know, pizza with, you know, all kinds of cool toppings on it, right? What does it mean he's supreme? Basically what Paul's saying is, Paul is saying Christ reigns. He is an authority. He is ruler he is sovereign over all the affairs of man. And if, if you don't know anything about God or Christ, mark this down, that Christ reigns supreme. He reigns supreme over all creation. All the creation we view when we look at Yosemite or we look at, you know, the sequoias, he reigns, his authority reigns over creation. That's why Christ could literally speak and calm the storms. Why? Because he reigns supreme. His authority was over even the elements, over nature, over creation. He reigns over creation. He reigns over government and politics. The Bible says the hand of the king is, uh, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he move it however he will. You see, our God, Christ, reigns supreme over governments and political movements, over creation. He is supreme over all. He's supreme and he rules over his church. Why? Because he is the head of his church. Not a pastor, not a priest, not a pope. Jesus is the head of his church. He reigns supreme. He is the ultimate authority. And as was said a moment ago, he answers to no one for that which he does. I want to remind you of this. He is also reigns supreme over your life. And I know there's times for all of us where we are like, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why are you allowing this to happen to my finances? And why are you allowing this to happen to my relationships? And God, why are you allowing this to happen to my health? And we're like, why, God? And, and God often, like he said to Job, he didn't answer with, well, this is the reason why. Rather than telling him why, he simply reminded him of the who, and that is, that is God. He's big, and he's powerful, and he's supreme, and he's all-knowing, and he reigns over all of it. Why? Because he is preeminent. And so you and I as believers have a, a decision to make. Do we humble ourselves? Do we align with his preeminence? Or do we buck against it? Do we push against his authority in our life? Do we push against his word in our life? Do we say, oh, I'm going to, go yes, God says this, I'm doing this. Is he 
prominent or is he truly preeminent? That's, that's really the heartbeat of this. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3 unpacks this even further when it says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Supremacy speaks of the fact that he reigns and he rules and he's in authority. Sufficiency speaks of the fact that, that though he is supreme and though he does rule, he is a benevolent ruler. He is a loving ruler. He is a compassionate ruler that provides everything that we need for life and godliness. So it's not just that he's supreme, but it's also that he's sufficient. Yes, he's over everything, but he also provides everything that we need for our life and for our godliness. And so in Corinthians, we're reminded, hey, let's not think we're sufficient of ourselves. And, and this is pushing against kind of Greek philosophy. These ideas, we can come up with all the ideas that make sense in our heads. And, and that's what ultimately will lead us to fulfillment and satisfaction in our life. And he says that we can't come to the place where we find that fulfillment in our own selves. Because ultimately, fulfillment and satisfaction comes in a very real, thriving, abundant relationship with Jesus. And I've got to remind us of this today, that Christ is enough. He is enough. And we're going to spend some time as we move through this book because there are some who want, yes, we need Jesus, but we also need these rules about this and those rules about these things. And we got to follow this tradition and follow these rules and not do this and make sure we do that. And we're going to just cumber this all up with these other external things. And we kind of add to it like the legalists did. And we got to, we got to, yes, we just, all these other things. And then there's others who say, well, no, nah, we don't need to add religious things to it, but we just need to add the world's wisdom to it. And and, and Paul just steps back and he says, I'm going to show you why Christ really is enough. His supremacy and his sufficiency is enough for what we need as we move through this life. Not to think we're sufficient of ourselves. Why? And we've said this before, but I want to remind us of it again. This is the reason Christ is sufficient. Because Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. Everything that your soul craves Everything your spirit ultimately longs for can find its fulfillment and satisfaction in an abiding, dynamic, experiential relationship with Jesus. Because I know all of our hearts crave after things. All of our hearts yearn for things. They all desire those things. And can I say this? It's not necessarily that all those things are bad, but as we said in the past, they're inadequate. They're inferior. They don't have the capacity to ultimately satisfy the deepest cravings and longings of our soul. And so some people, they try to find satisfaction in all these rituals. They try to find satisfaction in all these rules and all these traditions and all this. We don't do this and we do do that. And it's almost in what we do that makes us feel okay rather than just abiding in what he's already done. We gotta, we gotta navigate all this the way we think we should navigate because that's what makes us feel okay. Or we're on the other extreme and it's just like, no, nah, whatever makes us feel like we're happy, that's, that's what I need. And Paul's gonna push against both and he's gonna say both extremes are gonna lead you down a path of just inadequate. Christ is where fulfillment comes from. Abiding in Christ, experiencing Christ, enjoying Christ personally, that's where this fulfillment and satisfaction ultimately comes for. And so I ask you this question today, today, 
your heart will search for satisfaction. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager here. It doesn't matter if you're a kid here. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, just an unmarried adult, you know, young adult. Your heart is going to search for satisfaction in something. And the question is, are you going to look for it in the creation or in the creator? And we can get to a place that's like, well, I, yes, I need Jesus, but if, you, if you're... If, if you're a single adult here, maybe there's this temptation to be like, yes, but I'll be really happy once I get married. Yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful for Jesus. And some guy can think, but when, but when my business really hits it big time and I'm making the big bucks, then, then I'll be really satisfied. If you're sitting here and you're a parent, you've been wanting a child and child, children are beautiful things, but God in his sovereignty hasn't given you a child. And the reality is it's like, yes, I love Jesus, but when I, when I have that, finally am able to have that baby, that's when I'll be satisfied. And Paul's just going to come through and he's going to cut through all that. He's just going to be like, guys, Christ is enough. He is enough. And so throughout this series, we're going to be reminded that all these things that the world says we need to be satisfied, all the things our culture yells into our ears that we need to be content and that we need to be happy and that we need if we're going to have joy, if we, we do things we crave and we convince ourselves that we need that peace. Apostle Paul is going to come along. He's going to hack those things down one at a time. And every time he's going to stand up and say, you want to know the secret to life? You want to know the secret to satisfaction? Learn who I am and find out how to really enjoy me on the deepest levels. So we're going to look at the secrets to growth and development. We'll look at the secrets to praise and enjoying life. And we're going to find that those secrets find their culmination in an abiding, experiential, enjoyable relationship with Jesus. And as we move through this, we're not just going to talk about this in some metaphysical, esoteric type way, like this, you know, kind of pie in the sky, you know, this kind of just a cerebral understanding. No, just on a very practical way, a very functional way. What does it mean? How do we live a life where we are experiencing Christ as being enough for our situation? Because all of our situations are different. How are you going to go home and on Wednesday be satisfied when you have a boss at work that hasn't been sanctified yet. Or you have to go home to a spouse that's still in the middle of their sanctification. How do you find satisfaction when your health conditions are not what you signed up for? Can there still be a real peace in the midst of life not going the way you thought it was going to go? And Paul is going to say with a resounding authority, yes, that in Christ there is enough and if your Christian experience has not been that, if you've not come to a place where Christ is enough, we pray that this series will help you get closer to that reality where in more areas and in more situations in your life, you will find more liberation, freedom from needing this and needing that to be at peace and finding that full peace comes in Christ. Why, why is this so important? Because whatever you add to the blank of Jesus plus blank in order to be happy, whatever you add to that blank for you, getting married, having kids, having my kids better behave, having my spouse act different, you know, having more money, have, whatever you add in that space, you think you need it to be satisfied. Really, whatever you add to that space and the posture of your heart is actually the very thing that's robbing you 
from your joy and your peace because it's creating a striving in your soul. Like, I need this. And as long as you're craving it, you're striving for it, you're missing out on the fruit of the Spirit, just being able to flood your soul with peace and joy and hope as you just look to Christ for those things. So we're going to unpack this. So here's the takeaway, and we'll be done. Here's the takeaway. Saturate your mind and emotions in the promises of his sufficiency. The question is, do we believe this or not? It really comes down to this question, is Christ enough or is he not? Is Christ enough for our salvation or is he not? And most of us would raise our hands and say, yes, he's enough for our salvation. Here's the second question. Is he enough for our flourishing? Is he enough? And that's a harder question to answer for those of us who are still in the flesh on, human, on planet Earth. And what we're going to see over and over again in this book is, Christ, is, is Paul showing us again and again. Let me, let me remind you, church, that Christ really is enough because he is supreme. He reigns over all. You can trust what he's doing in your life. And because he is sufficient, whatever it is you're going through, he's sufficient to provide the needs that your life has in that season. We're going to see how to practically experience Christ as being enough, even when the flesh is telling us we don't have enough or we don't possess enough. In Christ, there is enough. Be satisfied, fulfilled, and content. And that's what we'll see played out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly